In that region there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. Let us pray. God, with believing and wanting to believe hearts, we come before you and and dare to listen through these words of Scripture and the reflections that I seek to bring to them and the listening hearts that we offer to them. May indeed these meditations be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. So somewhere, I cannot remember where, I read about a woman who confided in her pastor that the Christmas story just didn't do it for her anymore. She said, yeah, I, I still appreciate its beauty, and on some level I'm glad to hear it again on Christmas and sing the carols and see the kids in the, see the, kids in the pageant. But there's something vital in this story that's gone missing for me. She said, this may be heretical to say, but I kind of wish we had a a new story for Christmas. And in my reading of this story, wherever it happened, uh, I can't remember what the pastor said. I know you don't have that experience ever. I don't remember what I say half the time when I'm standing up here. But I do remember that the woman uh, took matters into her own hands in trying to solve this existential problem she was having with the Christmas story. And she did so by trying to mix up her Christmas routine. So instead of the traditional wake up on Christmas Day and open the presents and drink the eggnog and all of that, she took her family into the city and provided a series of service projects of some kind, giving time and resources to the less fortunate, 
maybe serving food at a homeless shelter or going to the local park and giving out hot chocolate with a smile. And as I remember it, that seemed to help her. She encountered, she said, something of the true spirit of Christmas, and they all lived happily ever after. If you can't tell, I'll confess that the ending of her story, of this account, left me feeling a little disappointed. It felt like one of those deeply layered and complex movies that ends way too neatly with some well-worn cliché. Her charity and its fruits were indeed admirable, but we have plenty of those kinds of stories already of all the Scrooges and Ebenezers and Grinches who find their hearts enlarged by the spirit of giving to see the true essence of this holiday. But what I really wonder about is whether that woman's relationship with the Christmas story really changed, or if she were just distracting herself from her indifference with a jolt of feel-good giving. If I were her pastor... I'd want to explore with her more deeply the state of her relationship with that Christmas story and with that child in the manger. And if I'm honest, in talking with her, I would be on the lookout for something in that Christmas story to razzle-dazzle her. It's a desire that affects many preachers on Christmas Eve, myself included, A pressure to find some new angle to this oft-told story, some unique twist or insight that would elevate and inspire you such that when you heard those words again, you would just have smiles of joy and wonder on your faces like you all do right now. No, not really. We're all looking for something that offers us more than just recollection or memory, and certainly we're wanting more than a cliché. And therein lies something of the irony. We can be so familiar with the Christmas story that we find ourselves strangers to it. We know the basics so well. Even those of us who have never set foot in this church or any church before or haven't been to one in a long time, we know about this baby Jesus and The story of him lying in the manger, no crib for his bed, no room at the inn. We know about the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night and the angels singing glory to God in the highest. We could almost say that we could tell this story by heart and at the same time not find our hearts being stirred in its telling. And that's why there is something about Mary Yes, movie pun intended. That we, I was hoping for laughter from my left on that one. I I, I knew it was coming. Thank you. (laughs) There is something about Mary that we ought to notice in this story. And if anything, what I'm going to offer you is perhaps what I have to give as the new angle, the interesting twist. It's what Luke says about Mary near the end of this story. We hear that after all these things happened, the manger, the shepherds, the angels, Mary, quote, treasured all of these words and pondered them in her heart. I think that's what the woman wanted from her pastor, 
a way to change her relationship with the story or maybe a new story altogether that would help her heart find the treasure for which she longed and upon which she wanted to ponder. And if you were lucky, this would be the quick and easy ending to this sermon. Me telling you that the key to finding life and vitality in the Christmas story is merely to try harder to be more like Mary and treasure these words and ponder them in your heart. But if Mary's life is any indication that treasuring and that pondering are not something one sets out to do, they're things that happen to us more than us making them happen. It's something that happens to Mary. Twice in Luke, Larry... Uh, Larry. <laughs> Thanks. Good job. <laughs> I've always respected you, but this is taking it to a whole new level. Yeah. Twice Luke narrates moments where Mary, quote-unquote, treasures and ponders something in her heart. And both instances share a common attribute. In each time, Mary comes to know how little she knew the person that she knew best. Let's start with this story, the one you know, where Mary, of all people, is the one positioned to know her son more than any creature on earth. She already knew from her annunciation that this child would be great in some way, that he would be a leader of her people, that his name would be Jesus. And she would end up being the one who would know this child in the most intimate sense, nurturing her in her womb, nurturing him in her womb, and also on the bosom of her breast. And yet here come the shepherds, a bunch of bedraggled men more attuned to the bleeding of sheep than a baby's behind, who have more knowledge of this swaddled Jesus than even his mother. They came telling her that this child would be a savior, a messiah, the Lord, that the throngs of heaven sang glory because of him. In that moment, Mary realized that though she was the one holding Jesus the closest, he was not in her sole possession. That there was more to him than she, than she knew, and that she did not dictate the terms of his existence. And this knowing, this knowing of her unknowing, led her to heart to treasure and her heart to ponder. A similar thing would happen 12 years later when Joseph and Mary would take their 12-year-old Jesus to Jerusalem for the annual Passover pilgrimage. And when they left, they were a day into their return trip and realized that Jesus wasn't with them. And so as parents do, they got worried and they scrambled everywhere looking for him, not being able to find him. So they went back to Jerusalem. And there they found Jesus in the temple sitting with the elders and the teachers, to whom he was both a learner and also somehow a sage. Mary comes in and confronts him, angered about all the anxiety that he has produced in going missing from her, and the adolescent Jesus looks to her and says in not so many words, Mom, don't you know? Don't you know that I am to be here in my father's house? 
No. Mary didn't know. That's the point. That though she had reason to know Jesus better than anyone else in the entire world, her knowledge could not contain him. And here again, Luke tells us, Mary treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. Each of you came here today with someone that you know really well. You can finish their sentences, you can predict their next moves, and it may be the person to your right, it may be the person to your left, but it most definitely is you. Whether you're here by yourself or with another, there is someone about whom you are the undisputed expert. And yet all, that, all the time, that person will do or say something. You will do or say something that shows you how little you do know, how much you do not fully understand. <clears throat> Isn't this why we love children so much? When they say or do something that we would not expect. And isn't that also why we are so troubled and confounded by them? It's the same reason that we are both in love with and so troubled by this world. That though, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun, this world and this life continue to surprise and confound us to our delight and to our horror. At one time, the people of Israel thought they had God all figured out. For they were the chosen people, after all. The ones with whom God tented and journeyed and commanded, and for whom they built a house. And then that house and that temple was destroyed. And that relationship with God, though secure, grew tense and strained. And then in the pain and the persecution of exile and later of foreign domination, God shows up in the form of a child in some backwater town. And those who would come to know him the best, women like Mary and men like Peter, would be continually overjoyed and confounded by him. This whole story is one of upended expectations that both dislocate us and delight us. And this is why the words of these stories are ever ready to stir in our hearts, even though they feel like strangers, because we know them so well. I'm very fortunate to have two colleagues at Westminster who are exceedingly gifted with the words of Scripture. Casey, the storyteller, who shows us that knowing a story by heart means something more than memorizing its lines. And Larry, the teacher, who shows us that learning from a text means more than apprehending its facts and figures. From both of them, we learn that the stories and texts of Scripture have a power beneath, behind, below, and beyond their words that enable those words and those stories to dislocate us and bring us delight. And so we who know the Christmas story by heart, who have the facts well memorized, must be prepared to have our hearts moved by the fact that we still do not know all that there is to know. That if God is indeed here with us in Christ, 
and through the Spirit. There is nothing that we hold in Scripture or in life that is completely in our possession. Nothing that is beyond God's ability to surprise and move us out of comprehension and beyond apprehension to the place where we may find our hearts encountering treasure upon which we may wonder and ponder. What we need then is not necessarily a new Christmas story, but our willingness and trust to allow the old story to continually surprise us and make things new. If I were that woman's pastor, perhaps the best thing I could have said to her, and the best thing that I may say to you, is that it is precisely because we know this story so well that we are best positioned for it to do or say something to us that we would never expect. We, the experts, like Mary, may become the ones awestruck when we become the novices, also like Mary. As we wait upon the baby of this story and watch his life unfold and become our salvation story. As your pastor today, I can tell you that it is better to give than to receive, that Christmas is more than presents and cookies, that we need to put the Christ back into the Christmas but you've heard all of that before. What I want you to know is that in this story, we find that everything that has come before is not sufficient to hold what is to come. That the power of this story does not emerge primarily as a result of our taking matters into our own hands, even as though we would do well to unclutter the crowded ventricles and aortas of our hearts to make room for wonder. But the work that we do is secondary and in response to the living and beating heart of God, whose mystery and creativity, which appears so vividly in that manger scene, can still enlarge our hearts and our minds, so that what once seemed big to us now seems small. That what once seemed fixed in place and secure in stagnation can move and grow and give birth to new life. We do not need a new Christmas story because the old one is not finished yet. The Jesus child will become the 12-year-old Jesus who learns, and then the adult Jesus who teaches in word and in deed what it means to love God with all of one's heart and one's neighbor as oneself. Crucifixion will become resurrection, which will become ascension, which will become return and revelation. Literally, the veils being lifted from our eyes as we see all that we are not able yet to see. In all that life gives us, both in delight and in dislocation, may we find our hearts enraptured in the razzle-dazzle wonder that God gives us to receive the holy treasure of these words, of this story, and of our God-with-us life, upon which and with whom we may eternally ponder. Amen.